Well, brothers and sisters, uh, I'd like to ask you please open in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Today, we're going to begin making our way through this incredibly significant portion of the book. But I have to admit, today's focus is one that is relatively difficult. Uh, It's a tough passage in the sense that it is offensive to many of our natural human sensibilities. So I just want to let you know that there may be some questions that you continue to have even at the end of this service, and that's okay. If you do, I want to encourage you to come and ask them. So I don't always do this, but today I'm going to be here right up in the front after the service is over to speak to anybody who has any questions or wants to have further information or discussion about the things that we're looking at in the Word today. Let me begin. I hope you're there with me. Uh, We're going to begin reading chapter 15, verse 1. This is God's perfect holy word. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart down from, the, from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. (laughs) Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, you are, not the head, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, 
And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on, a, on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to a passage such as this one, I pray, Lord, that you would assist us, help us. We desperately need you to enlighten our eyes so that we might see and to give us ears to hear. And Father God, as we consider in particular the command that you have given to put to the sword all of those of the Amalekites, Lord, I pray that there would be a softening of our hearts, not a hardening of our hearts today. Help us, Lord, to see you rightly, appropriately, correctly. And Lord, I pray that the holiness of God would be paramount in our eyes today. And Lord, in the midst of that, I pray that you would also bring about great conviction that we might see that our sin is likewise worthy of destruction. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is one of the most important scenes in the entire book of 1 Samuel. It is the last chapter where Saul is going to be the protagonist of the story. Starting in chapter 16 and moving forward, 
The camera is going to shift its lens over to, Daniel, uh, to David. David is going to become the protagonist of the story. And then Saul is going to become his primary antagonist. However, there are also some really challenging, heavy themes that we find here in this chapter that are well worthy of our time and attention. So for that reason, here's how we're going to go about covering chapter 15. We're actually going to look at it three separate Sundays. Today, we are going to look at one framework. Next week, we are going to look at another part of the framework. And then after that, we are going to consider the center, the portrait, the main event, the main point of the text, Saul himself and his rebellion. But for today, the part of the frame that we are going to build of the story is all around the question, why does God command the annihilation of the Amalekites? And the way that we are going to go about that is by asking or by considering eight truths about God that help us to understand this command. One of the things that often stings the sensibilities of modern Christian readers is the command for the people of Israel to completely eradicate certain peoples. We see that happen with Joshua when they come into the land of the Canaanites. We see that here in a couple of other places, for example, with the Amalekites. Here's the exact wording. Here is the focus of our attention today. In verse 3, it says, Now go strike Amalek and, to, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, what do you think about that? How do you understand that command? When you read over something like that, that is so profoundly harmful to individual human life, what does that make you think? If that doesn't make your jaw drop, you're probably reading it too fast or you have become too familiar. Kill both man and woman, child and infant. How do we square this command with other commands in scriptures? Commands such as love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And whenever we come to questions like this, here's how we need to begin. Whenever there's something that you don't understand about God or his commands, you start to think through your questions based upon what you already know to be true about God. So here we're going to consider eight truths about God that help us understand this command. We need to look at this passage, this command, in light of clear passages and clear commands that shed light on these more obscure. This is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at God, we're going to see his character, and we're going to see how that enlightens our understanding of this command. Here's our first truth. God does not need to be defended. One of the chief arguments that is often made against God, the God of the Bible goes something like this. A, a person, in my experience, often a college student, will say something like this. If your God is really a God of love, how could he command something like this, genocide of an entire people group? If Jesus really loves the little children of the world, why would he tell the Israelites to kill them? If your God really is forgiving and merciful, then what went wrong for these Amalekites? Charles Spurgeon famously once said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let it loose and the lion will defend itself. Well, that's also true of God himself. He does not need a defense attorney and I will not be a defense attorney for him this morning. In Daniel chapter 4, verses 35 through 30, 34 through 35, God is described this way. 
It says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? My goal in addressing this question is not to defend God's command. It is not our job to sit in judgment over what God does or what he commands others to do. My goal is not to defend or vindicate God, but just to explain him. Our second point is very closely related. This truth is that God owns everything and everyone. Therefore, he has full authority over them. One of the reasons that people have a difficult time understanding God's command to utterly destroy the Amalekites is due to the fact that people think God is basically like us, just bigger. They think of God like a lion sharing a house with a mouse. If the lion decides to attack the mouse, well, that's unfair because it's an abuse of his power. By the very fact that he's a lion and he's larger, and because his teeth are gigantic, and because the mouse is small and seemingly helpless, then it means that if the lion attacks, the lion must be at fault. But God is not just a more powerful person with whom we happen to share the universe. God is our creator. Psalm chapter 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. But don't stop there. If you keep reading, the next verse tells you exactly why God has full authority and full ownership over everything and over everyone. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In other words, God has the authority because he made you. God has the right to do with his creation whatever he wants. If I create a computer program, if I figured out how to code, and I put it into the computer, and I designed a software program to operate, then I have the right to take a portion of that code and either change it or delete it. I can do that. That is my prerogative because I am the creator. And as the creator of the universe, God has full reign over every creature, and he has every right to give life and to take it. Truth number three, God is just. He never judges the innocent. Look, we don't like the justice system all the time. And part of the reason is courtrooms sometimes get it wrong. Sometimes they get it very wrong. Judges come to incorrect conclusions. Juries come to unjust decisions. Sometimes our justice system punishes the innocent, and sometimes it frees the guilty. And there are many reasons for this. There are occasions when the system shows bias or favoritism. There are some people who, by reason of their wealth or their status, seem to operate above the law. But most of the time, our system gets it wrong because we don't have all the information. But God is not like that. He is the only judge who can make determinations with perfect knowledge. You never have to show him the evidence. He already knows. That is why Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, describes God like this. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. That is our God. 
Psalm 89 verse 14 adds, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Look, the throne of God, literally the seat that represents his power and authority is described as being built upon his perfect justice. Let's just think this through for a moment by considering some incidents in history. Consider Sodom and Gomorrah. Was God just to wipe them out with extreme prejudice? Was it an act of righteousness to eradicate them from the face of the earth? I think everybody in this room would agree with me that God was absolutely right in his actions. Their extreme wickedness certainly gives evidence that God was just in his outpouring of wrath over those cities. Yet consider, certainly weren't there men and women and children and infants in Sodom and Gomorrah? But Sodom and Gomorrah pales in comparison to the devastation that was levied against the antediluvian people of Noah's day. We don't know what the global population was before the flood. Maybe it was in the hundreds of thousands. Maybe it was in the millions. Could have been in the billions. Who knows? But what we do know is the population after the flood was eight. Eight people. Eight people left. God killed almost every single person on the planet. Every man, every woman, every child, every infant. Except eight. Except Noah and his family. And God was just in that decision. Why? Because it says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a description. If we move to the future and consider the final judgment of God over the earth, here's what we hear the angels sing about God's choice to end many lives. Revelation chapter 16, verse 5. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, True and just are your judgments. Think of our nation for a moment. Think of our state for a moment. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, what if God decided right now to eliminate every life in New York or to send a meteor and destroy everyone in the country of America? Would he be just in doing so? You don't even have to look past the mirror to give evidence that, yes, indeed, we are worthy of judgment. God was not commanding the destruction of an innocent people. If you remember, what does he call Amalek? He said, he said to, uh, Samuel said to Saul, why have you not destroyed these sinners, the Amalekites? God was completely justified in setting them aside for destruction. The only major difference between the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and the last judgment, the only major difference here is that God calls man to carry out the destruction. He tells sinful people like Saul and the Israelites to carry out God's judgment. And for some reason, in many hearts, that causes us to have trouble with this. Here's the fourth truth we need to remember about God. God is patient. If you still have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 15, look at verse 2 again. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Well, what exactly did Amalek do to the Israelites? Do you remember? Rewind just a little bit in the scriptures back to the book of Exodus, and let's think about it. When the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea, there was a great celebration. You see, all of their enemies, the enemies they had had for 400 years, the Egyptians who had enslaved them, it says they were dead on the shore. God had 
allowed the Israelites to pass through the Red Sea unscathed, and then he closed the waters up over Pharaoh's army. And so they rejoiced, and they celebrated that God had defeated their enemies. But then almost immediately, they bumped into a new enemy named Amalek. This was a man who was a ruthless warrior who decided to come up against the Israelites when they were at their weakest so that he could destroy them. He didn't like the idea of this big crowd of people making their way through what he perceived to be his kingdom. So Amalek attacks. And this time, we see Joshua, who becomes very important, by the way. Joshua, this is his first battle when he goes to fight against Amalek. Remember, these guys, they're not soldiers. They're brickmakers. And yet the Lord sends Joshua out as the captain of his army to go fight against Amalek. But that's probably not the part of the story you remember the most. Most likely, the part of the story that you remember is when Moses was sitting by and watching. Because it tells us that he was called to hold up his arms over the battle. And as long as he held up his arms, the Israelites would be victorious. But when he would lower them, the Amalekites would begin to conquer the Israelite troops. So perhaps you remember this story in Exodus chapter 17. Aaron and her come beside him and literally prop up his arms and hold up the arms of this 80-year-old man so that he can continue to keep his arms up and so that the Israelites would eventually win that battle. But not all of the Amalekites were defeated that day. Most of them retreated after the battle was over. But as soon as the battle ended, listen to what God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 17, 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, nearly 40 years later, when Moses is almost 120 years old and he is about to die, he told this to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 25. He said, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. God was very patient with the Amalekites. He allowed them to live 400 years after their first attack in which God said, for that you will die. 400 years, four centuries of having the truth about Jehovah God right next door to them. And yet in those 400 years, we have no evidence that even a single person of the Amalekites repented. The people of of Amalek continued in their violent opposition of the covenant people of God. They carried on their hatred of Israel from generation to generation. Now we see something very similar in God's first promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 15. He was telling Abraham, look, I'm going to give you this place, but your offspring are going to go away. They're going to be in a land not their own for 400 years, and they're going to be slaves there for 400 years before coming back to the promised land. And listen to the reason that he gives Abraham as to why the Israelites have to go away and then come back. 
Here's what he says. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for or because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, in that case, God was informing Abraham that he was going to give the Amorites another 400 years to continue on in their sin before the judgment was metered out to them. God was displaying immense patience with them. God is far more patient than any of us would have been. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us the purpose of God's patience. Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Look, even though God was patient with the Amalekites, they did not repent. They did not follow the one true God. They continued in rabid opposition to God and to God's people. This is a major point of application for us because your sin has long-term effects. You can't even begin to calculate just how far through time your sin is going to radiate. The ripple effects into the future are literally incalculable. Think about it. Amalek's sin resulted in punishment on people that probably did not even remember that he existed. Truth number five. God is merciful. Now, perhaps the greatest self-description ever given by God in the entire Bible is found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. There the Lord is speaking to Moses, and he told Moses his name. And here is how he describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, did you notice that the very first thing God highlights about himself is his mercy, a God merciful Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 describes God as being rich in mercy. Luke chapter 6 verse 36 tells us that we should be merciful even as our Father is merciful. Not only is God merciful, He is much more merciful than you are. The reason that I highlight this is not because God is going to show mercy to everyone. He, he won't. Obviously, He doesn't show mercy to the Amalekites in this chapter. So then why am I bringing up mercy? Well, here's why. Because so often when people have a problem with passages like this one about God commanding the annihilation of a clan or a tribe like the Amalekites, the opposition comes with a kind of heart attitude that says, well, if I were God, I wouldn't do that. If I were God, I definitely wouldn't command that. If I were in God's position in his shoes, I would never tell anyone to go wipe out an entire clan or tribe or people group. Well, people overestimate their own mercy, and they underestimate God's mercy. Think about it. If you were all-powerful, if you could do anything to anyone that you ever wanted, and just like God, no one could stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? You have perfect and complete impunity. And then somebody does something incredibly wicked against you. What would you do? Would you immediately stop them at all costs? I believe you would immediately wipe out the most wicked people in the world right now. You would look at those people who are involved in the child trafficking 
that takes place in the world, and I believe you would probably wipe them out immediately. You would not wait. You would not display any patience. You would not have any mercy for them. You would immediately wipe them out. Am I right? But God is so merciful that he offers forgiveness and he displays patience. Consider the fact, not that some random individual that he didn't know was attacked. God offers forgiveness to the very people that killed his own son. He is more merciful than you are. God is a God of immense mercy. Don't even for a second think that your theoretical mercy is bigger than God's actual mercy. I want to just pause here and say to you, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, maybe you know about him, you know some information, you know some details, you know that he lived, you know that he died, maybe you even know that he rose again. I want to tell you why all of that happened. All of that happened so that sinful, rebellious enemies of God that deserved destruction could be set free from the penalty of their sin. So that people like you and me who deserve a fate worse than death could be forgiven and brought into his own family. Jesus, the king of the universe, suffered and bled and died and rose again so that he could show you mercy and so that you could be forgiven. And I want you to know that if you have any questions about that, I will be right here after the service and would like nothing more than to share more with you about what God has done for salvation. Here's our sixth truth of the morning. <clears throat> God does not delight in the death of the wicked. In Ezekiel 18:32 we read, "For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone," declares the Lord God. "So turn and live." A few chapters later in Ezekiel 33:11, <clears throat> we find something very similar where God told Ezekiel, "Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked." but that the wicked will turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? I don't want you to just see that God says he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Notice how he says it. As I live, declares the Lord. Do you realize what he's doing there? He's saying, look, if I exist, if, if I'm really God, then the natural state of my being is to have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not pleased with the destruction of these wicked people. It does not delight him that they are sinners who refuse to repent. God's judgment is not like ours. He is not avenging out of spite or malice. Death is an extension of the curse that came because of sin. It came into the world through Adam's disobedience. And God does not delight in the destruction of his creation through death. He was not commanding the Israelites to delight in violence. He doesn't say, go and kill them and enjoy it. He was simply commanding them to carry out the solemn task of judgment. Truth number seven. God is never going to command you to do this. Look, there are some major differences between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. Under the old covenant, the people of God were a biological family. <clears throat> they were all part of one physical bloodline. They were part of a spatial, physical, national location. They were defined by their biology and their borders and their boundaries. They were defined by physical characteristics, and therefore they fought in physical battles. God preserved them as a nation, and he did that by way of war. But the new covenant people of God, the church, 
is not preserved in the same way. We are not made up of a single bloodline. We are called out of every tribe and tongue and nation. And we are not identified as a particular nation. We have no borders. We have no boundaries. We take the gospel to all people everywhere, and God brings them into his kingdom. You throw a dart at the map, and you're going to hit a place where there are the people of God. That is why Jesus told Pontius Pilate in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered, not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Perhaps you remember what happened the night before Jesus said these words to Pilate. You remember those events in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter pulled out a sword and attempted to take off the head of a man named Malchus, who was a servant of the high priest. Now, fortunately, Peter's a bad aim. <laughs> he just ends up cutting off the ear. Jesus picks it up and amazingly just puts it right back on to the head of one of the very men who was attempting to have him arrested that night. And then he turns to Peter and he says these famous words, put your sword back in its place. For all those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Or as I memorized it in the old King James, the weapons of our warfare is not carnal. It's very important for us to see that the church does not advance through violence. The kingdom of God does not grow by the sword. The only holy war that exists in the new covenant church is the war that you fight against your own sin. So although there is a place for the military, absolutely, and there is such a thing as just war theory when nations have rights to go to war against others, those are not part of the realm or the responsibility of the church. God is never going to give you the command to do what he told them to do. Truth number seven. God's command to annihilate the Amalekites was for the good of Israel. I'm sorry, that's truth number eight. <clears throat> In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God commanded Saul and the armies of Israel to completely devote to destruction the entirety of the Amalekite people. But instead... Saul decides to keep some of them alive. Now, in this chapter, we only read about Agag, who, of course, we find later was cut to pieces by Samuel. But there were many others who were also permitted to live. Well, how do we know that? We know that because they rise up to fight the Israelites again in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and again in 1 Samuel chapter 30. In fact, in an incredibly ironic twist, when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and Saul is dead, and a messenger comes and tells David that Saul is dead? Do you know who that messenger was? He was an Amalekite. Somebody who Saul was supposed to kill is now giving the word that Saul himself is dead. He outlived Saul, contrary to God's commands. If you notice, and we'll get there, 2 Samuel chapter 1, David completes that job, and he kills that Amalekite. In 1 Chronicles chapter 4, we once again read about the remnant of the Amalekites fighting against Israel. But what's my point? Well, we're going to see the Amalekites mostly disappear from the Scripture for a long time. In fact, the verses that I just shared with you, the ones I just spoke to you about, they're the only ones in the rest of the Bible that speak about the Amalekites, except one. 
Look, Israel was often in danger of being defeated. There were many occasions when they were just about to be wiped off the map. But do you know when they were the closest to annihilation? We find that story in the book of Esther. At the time when the Israelites were in captivity, they were in danger of being completely eliminated. The king was tricked into signing an edict that would not only allow, but actually promote the murder of all of the Jews and the plundering of all of their goods. In the, in the 20th century, in the 1930s, the Nazis, National Socialist Party, the Third Reich, they took notes they looked at what they did and they decided we want to make laws like that to eliminate the Jews. That was the first genocide that occurred. It was attempted. It was a promotion of the murder of all of the people of Israel. And King Xerxes had signed into legislation absolute immunity to every scoundrel in the nation who decided to gain wealth by way of wiping out the Israelite people. Well, the man who orchestrated that entire evil plot is one of the greatest villains of the Bible. His name was Haman. And here's how he is introduced to us in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Who did Saul refuse to kill in 1 Samuel 15? Who attempted to wipe out the people of Israel? Agag, Haman the Agagite. Now, it's worth noting that Agag is not a proper name. Uh, it's possible that Agag, the king who lived here, had sons who survived and that his direct descendants result in Haman. That's possible. But Agag is not a proper name. It is a title that the Amalekites would hold for their kings. Just like the kings of Gerar are named Abimelech, and the king of Egypt is called Pharaoh, and later the rulers of Rome would be called Caesar, the kings of the Amalekites were called Agag, which means a man of fire. So it's possible that Haman was a direct descendant of King Agag. It's possible that he was not. But we do know he was definitely an Amalekite a descendant of the very people Saul was commanded to kill. And if Saul and the Israelites had just done what God commanded, then the people of God would never have been put to the brink of extinction by Haman. God's plans are always better than our plans. Saul thought that he knew better than God, but his ignorance nearly resulted in the destruction of the entire people of God. So let's wrap this thing up with a nice bow by closing out here with some application. Five points. Number one. Guard against sneaky forms of pride. In Romans chapter 9, verse 20, Paul asks the stinging rhetorical question, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He then goes on to describe God as the potter and us as the clay. Nobody likes to be described that way. That's not something that jives with the human heart. We like to think highly of ourselves. We want to imagine that we are bigger or more powerful or more significant or more in charge than we actually are. And that is why some people will put God on trial, as it were, by imagining that they are more just or more patient or more merciful than God. That's an easy way for us to begin to sin. It's an easy form of pride for us to begin to accept because we think, because we call it mercy, it must be good. That's not only a display of immense hubris, it is a radical display of sinful arrogance that you know better than God. So acknowledge that God's attributes are far more holy than yours. Application number two, trust that God is good. 
Look, if you're struggling to understand how God can command this kind of judgment, then I encourage you to meditate upon and pray through Psalm 119, verse 68. It's one of my favorite of the myriad of lines in Psalm 119. It simply says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that what he does is good? Do you believe that all the time and in all circumstances? Do you believe that it was, tr- it was true in the command that he gave Saul? Was God good and doing good? If you're still struggling with that, pray the exact prayer that was given to you in this verse. Start by acknowledging, yes, Lord, I trust you are good, but I need you to teach me your statutes. Teach me, Lord. That's the kind of prayer that God is delighted to answer. Application number three. Learn that your way is never better than God's way. In a couple of weeks, we're going to examine the disobedience of Saul. But before we even get there, we need to acknowledge that his sin and our sin has the exact same starting block. We sin whenever we imagine that our way is better than God's way. All sin begins with a rejection of God's perfect standards. And I know I already said this, but I'm repeating it. Just to make sure everyone knows this is the case, God does not want you to fight or attack or kill anyone. Just make sure you write that down. But he has given you clear instructions that you probably are not following. Why? What are you thinking? Trust that God's way is better than your way and follow him. Application number four, rejoice that God will also guard, fight for, and vindicate you. Did you notice that God was not defending himself against the Amalekites in this chapter? He wasn't avenging himself. There's nothing the Amalekites could do to harm God. Rather, God was protecting his people. You and I have a good promise that Jesus is with us. He is never going to leave us or forsake us. And we are also promised that he will vindicate us in eternity and judge all of our enemies who do not repent and follow him. That's good news. We have a king who fights for us. It is good news that he loves us and that he will judge our enemies. Application number five. Judgment passages like this should drive you to humble worship. How can I say that? Because you and I are deserving of judgment just like the Amalekites. There's a death sentence that lays over the head of every single person. Now, you might die in battle. You might die when you're 100 years old on your deathbed. But there's a death sentence over every single human being. Every single one of us will, because of our sin, one day stop breathing and our bodies will be lowered into the ground. We don't have a kind of judgment like the Amalekites, but praise God, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You never have to worry that God is against you any longer. God is for you. Who can stand against you? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Earlier we sang, Jesus, your mercy. Jesus, your mercy is all my plea. I have no defense. My guilt runs too deep. Here's my favorite line of the song. The best of my works pierced your hands and your feet. Jesus, your mercy is all my plea. Look, the best things you have ever done are still considered by God to be an atrocious offense. There is not one action that we have ever taken that is separated completely from our sinful pride. 
Yet God is merciful, and his mercy is our plea. He shows mercy to all who bow the knee and repent before him. I just want to call once again, if you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is mercy, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And if you do know him, the very fact that God commands the destruction of the wicked should cause you to humbly bow your knee and say, Lord, I thank you that you did not send someone like Samuel to do this to me, and much more so, I thank you that at the final judgment, I will not receive punishment, but I will be given mercy. Let's pray. Father, we look at a passage like this one, and we see that there are some challenging things, but Lord, we thank you that your character, your attributes, your holiness, your justice, your mercy, your patience are on clear display. So Lord, I pray for every person here that we would think more highly of you because of what we have seen here, that we would recognize your holiness more clearly because of what we have seen here, that we would acknowledge that your standards are higher than ours and that your justice is better than ours and that your mercy is stronger than ours. And we pray that we would find that mercy in Jesus Christ alone and passages like this would draw us to our knees in worship of him. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.